Jan. Yes. Can you remember TikTok biscuits? TikTok biscuits. TikTok biscuits. Oh, with, with the, yes, and with the you used to lick the, the icing first yeah. before eating them, having told the time already. Paper boys, Victor Mowers. Well, reading Anson Cameron's book, Boy Hoodlum, took me back to my childhood when such things were commonplace. So, Anson, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Lovely to be here. And you look so young, too. (laughs) I look so young. I'm getting old looking back on all of these things. I mean, paper boys don't exist anymore. You can't have them. The great thing about writing a memoir is that the world gets more and more exotic the further it moves into the past. Yeah. And so, paper boys, our milk was delivered by horse and cart. You know, did, so your, did your father, because this is what my father did, he went round following the horse and cart, picking up the manure for the garden? Oh, yeah, we, we got paid if we went and scooped up the manure and for the roses, so yes. we got a little... But the, the great thing about the, the milkman on hot days was you could pop up from behind the fence and abuse him and he'd throw shards of ice at you and um, then you'd have a piece of ice to suck on for the next 15 minutes. But I'm just wondering, is Boyhoodlum a memoir or a eulogy to childhood? Well, I had a very happy childhood. You know, most people write memoirs that are sort of dripped in blood, but I, I had a privileged and happy childhood, and um, I look back on it fondly. Mind you, I, I was a, a, a smart-ass par excellence and a dreadful little prick to know if you were an adult. It's, boyhoodlum's more or less uh, um, the story of a war on adults that I waged. But how accurate is it? I mean... The opening, memoir is detection, invention, architecture, mm. curatorship and veneration. It is the resurrection and culling of a million uh, lived or imagined moments down to the few you can stomach and sell. Mm. So how accurate is it? How much of your personality justifies your childhood to yeah. make it happy? How accurate is it? I'm probably the wrong person to be asking the difference between fact and fiction because I deal in the latter more than the, the former. But I wrote an article, a, a column for The Age last weekend about memory and just what it is and what... And each time you remember a childhood incident, are you remembering the incident or the last time you remembered it? And if you're just remembering the last time you remembered it, and resurrecting that memory, and then you're looking back through 99 panes of opaque memory to the to the actual incident, yeah. and it, it's like Chinese whispers. I, so you can't really vouch for the accuracy of a lot of this stuff, and as well as that, with a memoir, you have competing allegiances. One is to the reader, and one is to the people who were there to try and get the truth told. And um, so I want to, to excite and colour the book for the reader, but I want to pair back all, all, all the gaudy sort of um, excrescence that I would put onto the book for the people who were there. And so there are these competing allegiances and I don't know who I served in the end. But, but people would remember the past differently. So, I mean, this is a question I was going to save to the very end, actually. But, um, you know, your parents, your siblings, those involved in these events, do you think they would remember these events the same way that you did? No, certainly not. Everyone's memory of a, of one incident will be different, you know, and you, you can see that from any time a news reporter goes around with a microphone after a, a train wreck, you know. Um, uh, but, and I, I have some experience of dealing with the feedback of um, the par- my memoirs of the past because, you know, having writing a column for The Age, I do use quite a bit of my past and, and people I've known and things I've seen and and get feedback almost immediately and and quite hostile sometimes. <laughs> that wasn't how it was. That's absolute nonsense. But here is how it was. Here are a couple of things. Um, talk to any of them. The We Club or mm. A Girl's Nakedness. I mean, there are certain events that occur in this book. Yeah. I mean, as... as 
as young males, heterosexual young males, we were fascinated by the thought of naked women, but you have access to them at the touch of a button these days. Back then, they they were just they were sort of like a dragon or, or a, some mythical creature. You never actually got to see one. So you, we hunted around the, the neighbourhood to see if we could find a naked woman anywhere, but they were they were just beyond our reach. But what was the trick that was played on you as innocent young boys in this well, area? Yeah, I'm a, I suppose I was about eight. My sister was thirteen, and she had a good-looking girlfriend, who, and we paid her to do a strip tease for us. And so we were forced to sit outside the bedroom window up a tree while she was going to do the striptease inside the bedroom, which she did. She fulfilled the contract, but she did it beneath a sheet, so we didn't even get to see anything. So we were ripped off, and I think the last thing I, I mention in that scene is is looking at the reflection of myself in a tree like some dumbfounded gibbon who'd just been taken. <laughs> but you'd been manipulated, yes, by, by your own sister. But, I mean, then... Continually. Continually. Well, the Wee Club is a bit of a deception as yeah. well. Well, I don't know if, if a Wee Club was a sort of a, a common phenomenon in, among young people, but my sister got it into her head that we could make ourselves rich by collecting urine, and and um, given that I was um, a boy and had a natural advantage at pissing into bottles, <laughs> I seemed to be the main supplier of the urine, and, and I was sort of treated like a ship's goat for, <laughs> for, for about two months, and she fed me cordials and all sorts of strange liquors to get the flow going, and um, by the end of a couple of months, we had a shed full of Vickers gin bottles just crammed full of urine and um, I don't know what we were thinking or what we were going to do with it but as as is the case with most urine clubs it ended in tears <laughs> but, but I mean it's it's just the the nonsense of youth where you get fixated by something mm. and then it, it became a secret sort of um mission that we had to get home from school you know and store it you know don't have a piss at school get home and and, and to what end, I just still don't know. But, <laughs> but it happened. But then it leads into this book and memoir, leads into the um, almost tragic moments where mm. you start losing uh, your innocence. There's um, Benny Zambrano. Benny Zambrano. So uh, just before I... I have to say all the names in the book have been changed, and some of them three times. So when you mention characters, I probably won't know who you're talking about. Well, this <laughs> but, is, but I do know this one. This was the hoodlum, a hoodlum that my sister hooked up with at the Star Bowl. The Star Bowl was this little um, den of iniquity. It was a piece of the big city broken off and drifted up to Shepparton, and we were forbidden on pain of deep punishment from going to the Star Bowl. So we went there all the time. <laughs> And my sister hooked up with one of the town's premier hoodlums there one day when I was about, I don't know, I suppose I was six or seven or something. And she was just a teenager and had, had prettied herself up and, and put on alluring scents and gone down there. And next thing I know, she's sitting on the lap of this guy who was, you know, had a real reputation around town. And I was evidently shocked by this and, and sat pretty close to them, just staring boggle-eyed at them and, until he came over and bribed me. Um, with all sorts of confectionery and milkshakes and things. And so I sat there stuffing myself in chocolate milkshakes and crunchy bars and while well, he touched up my sister. <laughs> and but he taught you how to wink. He did. He taught me how to wink and he, and he called me Tiger. And, and I felt like some sort of sidekick, you know, in, in some grand misadventure. So uh, was he a hero or was he a hoodlum? He was a hero for a very brief period of time. And, he, and I was sworn to secrecy that my sister was seeing him. So he was a hero for, for that window of time until, as was always the case, my sister and I fell out of something and I dobbed her in. And then there was a great hullabaloo in the family that she'd been seeing this fellow. 
Um, she was sent away to boarding school, <laughs> which was not a bad outcome for me, to be honest. But here it goes. Here's, here's uh, one of the outcomes, um, because it, it generates a dispute in the mm. family. It became an epochal dispute during which I realised my family was mortal, had a lifespan, would end, and was, in fact, fleeting. I suddenly knew the fragility of my world, and I felt the hollowness of freefall in my gut as that world began to drop away with the adults and teenage girl in the kitchen yelling and crying. My parents are only together because they agree every day to be together, I realised. Maybe I had brought this agreement undone. I began to wonder if I'd broken the family. Mm. Yeah, it was one of those, you know, one of those moments in life when you know you've done something really, really wrong. Um, and as a kid, a small kid, you, you think, especially if you come from a pretty well-settled and, and happy family like I did, you, and you think that it's just in the family's in immemorial stasis, it will never change, it will always be thus. And, and this was one of the first glimpses that, hell no, you know, the cast might change. Um, people will come and go. We are moving through time and space. Stuff can go wrong. So it was a deep rift in the family when I delivered the cruel news that Debbie was um, seeing Benny Zambrano behind the shelter sheds, as it were. But it's also uh, part of your transition or a child's mm. transition into another world. Yeah, and, and the realisation of the power of, of the spoken word. Um, the power of I had as a as a as a spy and and a um, of my espionage, um, yeah. One of those stepping stones to adulthood, even though it was only at about the age of six, where you start to see the world outside the house as a larger sort of uh, larger and more dangerous and, and more fleeting world than you had imagined. And are you able to reveal what happened to Benny? Benny was killed in a rollover. The cops were chasing him. In a, this is a sad part of the book. The book's mostly funny, I've got to say, but this is <laughs> this is a particularly sad part of the he, he used to come into my father's office with all sorts of grievances against the police and see one of my father's partners. And One time I remember he came in with a great hank of hair that the police had pulled out of his head. He was a long-haired bloke. And um, my father's partner just picked it up and threw it in the waste bin and said, Benny, don't bring hair in here anymore. You know, <laughs> hair isn't evidence. Hair's just hair. In this town, but anyway, a year or so later, Benny was um, being chased by the cops in his Studebaker and um, hit a tree, going too fast to hit a tree, and um, the car burst into flames, and that was the end yeah. of, of Benny. But this brings up the whole notion of uh, innocence and tragedy—that mm. sort of counterpoints in the book. Mm. And, and again, one of the first um, moments of realization that young people died, that, that death wasn't just um, unanimously reserved for the aged and the drunken, you know, that the young people could be involved as well. Yeah. It was a bit of an eye-opener. But there's all sorts of other lovely things um, of the past, Italian migrants, local show, um, things that adults did too. Lucky and the Fish, did that actually happen? What happened? Yeah. Well, Lucky, Lucky Simpson, I didn't change his name because he's dead now, but he was one of the generation of men who came back from the war and Lucky had been on the Burma Railway, so he had seen into the black heart of mankind and when he arrived back from that war... He had an ethical freedom and he had an ability, as, as did a lot of the returned soldiers, to, to laugh at a, not only authority but to laugh at life in general and to know to some degree that it was a big joke, that um, local, the local water bailiff's rules didn't matter, um, the local copper's rules didn't matter as much as they ought to have. Um, and they adopted their own sort of morality because they had seen things that we just hadn't seen. You know, priests didn't go near these people because these people had seen that things that priests hadn't seen and the, and the truths that 
the priests had to offer just didn't ring true to them. So priests sort of circled around them and spoke to the war widows, but not to the returned men. And so Lucky Simpson had this beautiful ethical fluidity and um, eccentricity, and he had an ability to laugh at almost anything, which I admired from the earliest. But the the story about the fish is one time he and um, a friend of his, Barrel, who's still alive and I saw the other day, he's 92, he was the mayor of Shepparton at the time, and they decided they'd drag the lake, which was an illegal activity, drag it for fish. And it was legal then, it's illegal now. And the, the lake is right in the centre of Shepparton. Barrel was the mayor of Shepparton. So they thought they'd better do it uncover of, under cover of darkness. So they got there pre-dawn, waded out in, in their Y fronts into the murky waters of the uh, Vic, Lake Victoria in Shepparton and began to pull this net through the lake. And didn't take them long to realise they had a big catch and they were really onto something. So they dragged the net up onto the levee bank and... Um, they had a lot of fish. Lucky Simpson had somehow bought himself a new Mercedes-Benz, brand spanking new Mercedes-Benz, and it was in, in the Goulburn Valley of the early, late 1960s, it was like a, a unicorn among mules. It was just the most beautiful automobile anyone had ever seen. We didn't know where he got the money for it or why on earth he bought it, because he lived out on an orchard. But anyway, he started to fill the boot of the Mercedes-Benz up with his yellow belly, realised he couldn't get them all into the boot, and said to Barrel, well, we'll just have to fill the car up as well. Barrel said, don't do it, Lucky. He said, Lucky, fish don't stink, put them in the car. So he, he filled the car up, he wound the front windows down and filled the car up to the level of the windows with live flipping fish, um, all about the size of a corgi. You know, they were goodly fish. And then they both, in their wife fronts, climbed into the car, squirmed down in amongst the fish till they found the, you know, Lucky found the pedals with his feet and turned, turned the key and, you know, the crowd's lucky, the crowds don't let you down. And off they went with these fish sitting tit, tit deep in, in yellow belly. And uh, the, the early risers, the paper boys, the peeping toms and, and the, the insomniacs would have seen Lucky and Barrel driving home in dawn's early light deep in, in Yellow Belly um, in a brand new Mercedes-Benz and by midday, this is the most surprising thing, I reckon by midday they would have forgotten about it because it wasn't that out of out of the ordinary to, for Lucky to do stuff like this. <laughs> the, the, the book is, is full of incidents like these as well as um, Anson's own uh, terrible behaviour but you make a decision. At some point. Yeah. Oh, most of my childhood was a, was a war waged against adults. You know, I, I realised early on that I was I was quite I had a gift for words and I was a pretty good smart ass and that being a smart ass in class or at school would pay off with laughter and I enjoyed the laughter of my contemporaries and so I was prepared to pay the price, which is being beaten or you know exiled or whatever it might be. It didn't matter. I was prepared to pay the price until we got to high school and I realised that there was more or less a price on my head with the teachers at one stage. And I was hanging around with the, you know, with the truant and um, miscreant element of, of the studentry and, and over the back of the oval and, you know, misbehaving all the time. And, but I could see that they, they, they had me, the teachers had me in the gun and that they were going to um, get rid of me. And so I pulled back from that life, um, divorced myself from my hoodlum friends and, and girlfriends and... Um, for the for the last six months in Shepherd and I towed the line so I didn't get thrown out of school because I was going away to school. I always knew I'd have this second life at boarding school and so I didn't want to ruin that. You know, Shepparton was more or less an ant farm for me which I just used as, uh, you know, all the people in it as experiments and then 
But we then get to the last paragraph of the book, which mm. serves almost as a lament to a childhood now gone. And I'll end the interview on this. Eventually, there is only an occasional ephemeral image surfacing greyly in the coloured tumult of now, igniting a throb of reminiscence, a peripheral glimpse of a half-known somebody, such as you might see when running past a warped mirror. The boy was tangled in that town as it crossed the frontier moment of now into the past. That kid is dead for all but a few unplanned flashes a year. And even in those moments of reincarnation, is a stranger. Oh. Anson, thank you. There's a tear in Anson's eye. People have told me they've ended up crying at the end of the book, which I'm quite pleased to see. But it's a lament to childhood (laughs) in many ways. But Anson, thank you for coming in today. It's been a wonderful sort of flashback into my uh, childhood as well. Jan? Well, we're going to continue this whole theme of memoir uh, because... Lisa N. Edwards is in with me and her career for 15 years is given, being given life as uh, the career of the main character in Can't Fight Fate. Let's just hear what that career is. Okay, my career was I was the owner and agent for Visions MCP in Melbourne for 13 years and I travelled back and forwards from here to Hollywood and dealing with a lot of different people, actors, extras, models, um, entertainment lawyers, uh, producers, you name it, we dealt with it. And they all make uh, a little caricature here. But they do. In, in um, Can't Fight Fate. Well, our main, main character is Nikki. Yes. She's intelligent enough to be a lawyer mm-hmm. and has skills to work internationally, but there is one thing she's absolutely hopeless at. She's hopeless at love. She's not very good at life either. So the the only thing going really well for her is her job and that's the only sure thing in her life. Well, we catch up with her 17 years after she's been to a psychic. Yes. And uh, the psychic told her the goal for a perfect man. Uh, Who is he? Well, this is the million-dollar question and one that she's been searching for for a long, long time and... She Once she gets to Hollywood, she finds or she thinks she finds who he is and he's standing in front of her and the psychic has let her in on a lot of his traits and what he looks like and he's got these big, beautiful green eyes. And But there's one condition. If she wants to catch this man, she can't tell him what she knows. There's The psychic says, he's nice to look at, nice to see, but if you chase him... He will flee. Now, I must say, the front cover of this book, um, Can't Fight Fate, has got that green eyeball. And he's looking quite serious. But that's really not how this book is set up. No, it's it's definitely not. It's um, quite comical how Nikki sort of goes through life and she fumbles through it. Well, she uh, meets him on a blind date and she's wearing this beautiful pink dress. Now, this was so weird that I really think it might have happened to one of, one, or one of your friends it happened to one of my friends it did it definitely did well pink as i said she's drinking a black martini down the front so she's so embarrassed about this what does she do about it what does her friend do for her so her friend takes her away into the uh ladies toilets and nikki's a bit of a germaphobe so she's sitting in there and she doesn't want to touch anything and 
Uh, her friend Siobhan tells her, give me your dress. And she's like, I'm not giving you my dress. She's like, get into the stall, give me a dress. So she does that and she's sitting there for quite some time. And uh, Siobhan comes back in, I've, you know, a, a short while later, probably 15, maybe even 20 minutes. And I have no idea where the rest of the people thought she was at this point. So <laughs> <laughs> Two guys on the table having a good chat. Probably yeah, about yeah. You but know, girls always go to the toilets so together. This, this pink dress is now... Black. Black food gut dye from the kitchen. And I thought that was really, really incredible. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, that has to be based on truth. <laughs> it was definitely based on truth. It happened to a friend of mine in LA and... Um, yeah, a Mexican chef took her away and dyed her dress on the spot <laughs> and it was a black dress. Thereafter. Uh-huh. Yep. Now, Nikki's job, uh, she gets to meet some very, very nice people in her work. She does. Um, but then yeah. one of them sort of says, what are you doing on St Valentine's Day? <laughs> he does and he's a little bit full of himself and she she goes on this date because he has green eyes and she thinks, well, what if it could be him? What if this is the man that he's, oh. he sort of fits the brief that the psychic has given her and goes on this day and it's disastrous. Everything that could go wrong does go wrong. Oh, it is so funny. It is really very funny. Now, Nikki also decides that, well, she should go to acting school. And you did this too, I did, Lisa. yes. Yes. And did you have the same outcome as Nikki? No, I didn't, fortunately. Unfortunately for me. But um, So Nikki goes to acting school and I have just, seen people in acting school like this and they really just stand out and they don't fit in and you're not really quite sure why they're there. And the more they try and fit in, the more they stand out. <laughs> and this is this is how she felt. But she's also got a great mate in uh, LA and at Siobhan. She was with Nikki when Nikki first went to the psychic. Mm-hmm. So she knows that Nikki judges every man against the guy this guy but Siobhan's life is in disarray so Siobhan is one of these people that you see from the outside and she looks like she has everything together and it's a situation where you never know what's happening behind closed doors and you know everything that she tells Nikki because Nikki at this point is in Australia and Siobhan's in LA and, you know, her life's wonderful. Everything's great. Every, you know, her partner's great. Her work life's great. Mm. And, you know, you take that on face value because you don't think your friend is going to hide all of those things from you. Then once she gets to LA, she discovers it's completely different. Well, she started staying in their apartment. This is a little quote from the book. Their apartment was like staying in a war zone. Words were their weapons. Everywhere you went, you were dodging another bullet. (laughs) (laughs) Not good, not good. And of course, um, Siobhan, uh, incredible, incredible chapter where she goes from promotion in her work to being arrested by the police. Yes. <laughs> by the end of the book, Siobhan is pregnant and Nikki questions her own body clock. And so the first book is finished. She knows the guy's mm-hmm. name with the incredible green eyes, but they're both in different relationships. She's in one with somebody. Now, I love this one. He could have been a Justin. He could have Just been. in case. <laughs> <laughs> that man, a Justin. <laughs> Sorry to all those Justins yeah, out there. Yeah, I apologise to all the Justins out there, but yeah, you, you need to have one of those guys, a Justin yeah. case. There's some incredible quotes in the book. Now, there's one that uh, Siobhan writes to uh, Nikki, like you see in all those really 
yucky romance cards. What is it? It is loving someone who doesn't love you back is like hugging a cactus. The tighter you hold on, the more it's going to hurt. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then you give us one from Shakespeare. I do. So when I saw you, I fell in love and you smiled because you knew. Now, I'm going to get you to read one more quote. <laughs> and I couldn't believe where this one came from. Now, this one's Taylor Swift and it's included because my daughter is a huge, huge fan and she said, Mum, if you can, you need to put in some of her words. And <laughs> Taylor Swift, next to Shakespeare. <laughs> next to Shakespeare and we approached Taylor's management and um, ah. they allowed us to use it. So it says, we should love, not fall in love because everything that falls gets broken. Oh, yes. Now, there's an interesting uh, another element in this because, you know, these li life is going on in and out of romances and uh, relationships for these nearly well, late 30s. Yeah, late 30s. Late 30 people. But I couldn't believe how much they actually still relied on their parents' opinions. I think you never stop wanting to hear those opinions, even if you're going to rebel against them you still want to know what they think and then you can make your decision from there it's like okay mum said that I'm going to do the opposite or mum said that that's really good advice now like the blue uh, the pink dress going black mm -hmm. I, I have never heard anything as terrible as what was written in Alex's father's will now that was Alex's father wrote in his will that he would get nothing if he was still having sinful relations with that whore Siobhan written in the will. <laughs> well, that is actually oh, something that oh. my husband's Italian. Oh. So, and when I married him, I had four children. Oh. Yeah, we now have a, a beautiful daughter together. That's the Taylor Swift daughter. Oh, right. <laughs> and he got 20% because it would be passed on to my daughter. So, yeah. Oh, my and the, goodness. And the rest went to his sister. I thought it would sort of sound it's so incredible. Yeah, it, it's it, altered it a little be, bit. It's altered a little bit. It couldn't be just straight it is, fiction. It is, yeah. Now, I want to ask about a superstition which I've never heard of before. See, I'm learning so much from the book. <laughs> if you buy somebody's shoes, they will walk out of your life. That is a superstition that oh, I heard that have held for such a long time. It's been passed down through my family. And, yeah, it... It goes without saying for parents with children, they're going to walk out of your life. But a partner buying your shoes, um, you don't want that person to walk out of your life. So I will never let my partner buy me shoes. There you go. I've never heard of that one. No. <laughs> We're getting a lot of nods and shakes of head. No, I don't know that one. So Lisa Edwards' book, Can't Fight Fate, is about love and that rush of love and the butterflies that are built yes. up in love. and. At the end of the book, you even give us a preview of the next book, which yes. is Chasing Butterflies. It is. So you wrote these three books. Mm -hmm. And publishing? Um, publishing, I went to a vanity publisher. So I had the option of going through a big publisher, but they wanted to take away all the options that I wanted to have with films and that sort of thing. Oh. Right. Yeah, so... Um, it's a very visual book, I can sort of see it. Yeah, yeah and, and I'm a script writer and that is... I went in and I was going to write a script originally and it became three books. And I thought, I don't want to give those rights to anyone up front. I want to be able to, you know, 
talk to people and see that they understand the book and that way I can yeah work through with them. An author who understands the legalities. Well done you Lisa Edwards. Thank you. So I've been speaking. Now Lisa if people want to get your romantic comedies where from? Um, it is available everywhere online so uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Booktopia, um, Dimmicks um, have them in store. I'm just Good trying stuff. to... Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you can think of. The book we're talking about today is Lisa N. Edwards' Can't Fight Fate. And I was talking to Anson Cameron, Memoirs of a Devious Childhood, um, and, yeah, Boy Hoodlum and its Penguin Random House. Oh, so we've got all these family stories coming together today. Well, not family, really. <laughs> We could we could see Anson's life on film next. This could be the next. <laughs> be R rated, I think. Oh dear me! And so we will see you all next week. We will. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.